Well, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bible, I uh, hope that you do. Uh, would you turn to the text that we just read or stay there at least? And, and maybe also put one finger in Matthew chapter 28 as well. So kind of one, one finger in Acts, one finger in Matthew. As you're doing that, I'll introduce myself. Uh, my name is Reed Roper, and I'm a member at First Baptist Church, Harrisburg. I also teach here uh, in Marion in the Unit 2 district uh, down at Adams and Krill Springs. Uh, I teach junior high math down there, uh, which I really enjoy. Uh, but I'm glad to be with you here this morning to worship the Lord together. I understand that the Journey and First Baptist Church Harrisburg have had a partnership for some time, and so I'm glad to be able to continue that partnership here with you this morning. As you know, your, your pastors are visiting some of our workers right now in Central Asia, and so I'm really thankful to Pastor Jordan for this invitation and opportunity to preach God's Word to you this morning. Uh, the family that they are visiting, I've, I've had the privilege to visit that family for the, for the past two summers, uh, this past summer for two months, and the summer before that for one month. And this is a family that has been uh, sent out to the field by First, First Baptist Church Harrisburg. They have left their comforts and dreams here, and in obedience to the Lord, they have planted their lives in the midst of an unreached people group, uh, which is a people group not just with a lot of lost people, um, but with uh, very people with limited access to the gospel. Um, they, these workers have learned the language and the culture. They've shared the good news of the gospel and sought to make disciples and then gather those disciples together in a local church. And by God's grace, this has happened. Um, much gospel seed has been scattered in their city. Disciples have been made, and those disciples are now being discipled in the context of a local church. And so, as I mentioned, the, the past two summers, I've spent time over there seeing what the work is like, uh, trying to encourage our workers and sort of bring them a little taste of home uh, as I go over there. Uh, but of course, I also have received benefits uh, from these trips as well, as I've been able to witness the work that is happening there. Uh, some of the guys that I had, I had met, I had, I had prayed for really for, for some time as their stories and their prayer requests had been shared with me. And so then to finally you know, meet them in person halfway across the world, and to hear their stories of God's work in their lives uh, was, was a real blessing. So I've been able to witness the work there, but by God's grace, I've also gotten the chance to participate in the work there. Uh, just to mention one really cool opportunity that I had this past summer uh, with my brother Sam, who I traveled over there with, um, we had the privilege to do a Bible study with some of the emerging local leaders there, and that was just such a good time of mutual encouragement in the faith of us trying to help them, them helping us, seeing their perspective on the scriptures. Uh, it, was a, it was a really good time. So, so being there, meeting the people, seeing the city uh, has definitely created in me a resolve to commit to pray for our workers there and the people and the good work that is happening there in that dark place. It has been and continues to be a great privilege to be a part of a sending church, one that is holding the rope for our workers as they go down into the dark pit to shine the light of Christ. And so this morning, I would like to take us to a text where we see the local church sending out missionaries. It's in Acts 13, which I think is the foundation of missionary going. Uh, the title of the sermon will be The Local Church and the Global Mission. The Local Church and the Global Mission. We will see the church gathered together, worshiping God. The church hears the Lord set aside a group to go, and the church confirms and sends them off on mission, supporting them as they go. I believe that God can and does use specific texts to call people from where they are to another place. Maybe today God will use this text to form in you a deeper commitment to his global mission to be a more faithful sender. Or 
Maybe today is the day where God helps you realize that you're to pack it up and go. Maybe today is the day where God gives you, as Paul says in Romans 15, 20, an ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. So maybe today God will be pleased to give you that holy ambition. So we've already read the text, so let me pray for us, and then we'll get into it. Father in heaven, how good and sweet it is to be able to approach you as our Father. We thank you for your pursuit of us in salvation. You have forgiven us of our sins. You have washed us of them completely because of the blood of Christ. You have made us right with yourself through the work of your son. But even more than this, you have brought us into your family. You have adopted us by your grace through faith in Christ. And we are thankful for who you have made us to be in Christ. Father, we are also thankful that you speak to us in your word. We, we love your word. We want to lay it up in our hearts and understand it with our minds and embrace it with all our affections. I pray that you would help me to speak your word with clarity and accuracy. Help me to make your word plain. And oh God, guard me from error. May my words be heard as your words as they conform to the scriptures. I pray that you would give your people hearts that are soft to receive God's word. Oh Lord, send your spirit to illuminate the text and to give courage to obey what you call us to. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So again, the title is The Local Church and the Global Mission. So what is the mission? Let's remember Jesus' words in the Great Commission. So one thing in your Bible, turn, turn to Matthew 28, but hold your place in Acts. If you remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So in verse 18, we see that Jesus has all authority. He has total, absolute, sovereign authority in heaven and on earth. No matter where you go on the planet, Jesus has all the authority there. We see in the Gospels that he has authority over nature, disease, demons. When Jesus speaks, these all obey. Jesus also has authority over sin and death. Jesus alone can forgive sin, and Jesus alone has defeated death by rising from the grave. Jesus has all the authority, so in verse 19, he says, go therefore. And the word therefore is certainly an important word. Because Jesus has all authority, go. Jesus' authority compels us to go, even to difficult places. Because his authority is, a, is, con, is confidence for us as we go. So he says, go and make disciples of all nations, and the word nations there is, is not really like how we think of nations or countries today. Rather, think tribes or families or clans, often referred to as people groups. Uh, they share similar language, culture, heritage. And Jesus says to go make disciples of all nations, all of them, all the peoples, which is consistent with his design from the very beginning. God, from the very beginning, has been concerned, always concerned, with all the nations, all the peoples. His design has always been to be worshiped among every people group on the planet. And so this missionary task is not simply winning as many people to Christ as possible, although we certainly want to do that, but the unique task of missions is to plant the church among people groups where it does not exist, to plant the church where there is no church to evangelize its people. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them and teach them to obey Jesus which happens in the context of a local church. 
And then in verse 20 of the Great Commission, we see Jesus' promise to be with us as we seek to do these things. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus not only gives us a mission, we are not left alone in the mission, he promises to be with us as we seek to carry it out. Jesus' authority and presence with us gives us confidence as we go. The one who sends us out is sovereign over all and is worthy of worship from all. King Jesus is worthy of worship from every person on the planet. Therefore, we go and make disciples to get glory for the king. And to make disciples, of course, we must, we must share the gospel by speaking it to lost people and living lives according to the gospel. Right? We, we go and we teach about the one true God who is completely holy, completely righteous. We go and we tell them about the sinfulness of man, about how the holy God created us to be in relationship with him, to love him, to worship him, but instead we have rebelled against him. We have sinned against God and gone our own way. And that our sin separates, separates us from God. Right? The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death. What we deserve because of our sin is death, eternal separation from God. From God, Experiencing his just wrath. And so we go and we preach this bad news first so that the good news sounds like what it really is, good news. In fact, it is the best news in all of the world that the holy God has made a way for sinful man to be reconciled to himself. God has made one way to be reconciled to himself, and that is through his son, Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So God sent Jesus to die in the place of sinners. Jesus, the sinless one, became the substitute for sinners in his death on the cross. And then three days later, he, he rose again, right, in victory over sin and death, so that all who trust in him, all who trust in him alone, may be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life. And so if you're here today and you've not yet trusted in Jesus, that's really step one in the mission. Step one is be part of the mission by believing in Christ today for salvation. Don't wait, right? There's urgency, there's real urgency. So repent today and turn away from your old life of sin and run to Christ. So this is our mission, right? We go to all the nations, all the people groups based on the authority of Christ. We preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize them and teach them how to obey Jesus, knowing that he is with us every step of the way. So this mission, this great commission, certainly for all believers, but in another sense, also for local churches. The local church is Christ's primary strategy for missions. The local church is God's plan, God's chosen tool to get the gospel to the nations, and the global mission will be accomplished through the local church. So as we proceed, Let's each consider the role that we have to play in this global mission. So before we pick it up in Acts 13, I'd like to do sort of a flyover of what has happened so far in the book of Acts to set the stage for where we're at here in chapter 13. So if you would, if, you if you're in Acts, could you sort of go back to chapter 1 and see the, the flow of it as it flows from chapter 1 to chapter 13. We know that in Acts 1, after Jesus' resurrection, he spends 40 more days with his disciples. He tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. We see in Acts 1.8, Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus promises power from the Holy Spirit when he comes. And this power of the Holy Spirit is a key theme in Acts. In Acts, we see Jesus go up, the Holy Spirit come down and the gospel go out. The book of Acts is a missionary book where we see the triumph of the gospel. Whatever barriers exist, the gospel 
breaks through those barriers. To be clear, Jesus is still the one doing the work in the book of Acts. Luke, the author of Acts, says that in his first book, you know, Luke's gospel, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so in Acts, Luke will describe what Jesus continued to do and teach. So it is still Jesus doing the work, but he will now continue his work through his disciples as he builds his church. Acts 1.8 is the outline for the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The gospel is in Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 7 of Acts. Chapters 8 through 12, the gospel spreads to Judea and Samaria. And then from chapter 13 to the end of the book of 28, in chapter 28, the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And so we clearly see the theme of the priority of spreading the gospel across the globe. In Acts 1-9, Jesus ascends to heaven where he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. And then at the end of chapter 1, we see the disciples gather together in the upper room for prayer. Matthias is chosen to replace Judas, and he is numbered with the 11 apostles. In Acts 2, this very significant chapter in the Bible, we see the outpouring of the promised Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit empowers the disciples to preach the gospel, and Peter, on that day, stands up to preach the first Christian sermon, and 3,000 people believe the gospel and are saved. These believers then gather together, where they devote themselves to hearing the scriptures, to fellowship, to prayer, and they're demonstrating love for one another. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. In Acts chapter 3, Peter heals the lame, a lame man, but is quick to say, this was not, my, my, not by my power, this happened by the power of Jesus. Peter then preaches the gospel and calls those who hear to repent and believe. But Peter, along with John, get arrested for their preaching, yet they remain bold and they continue to speak about Jesus. When the Jewish council sees their boldness, all they can say is, those guys have been with Jesus. Peter and John are then told to stop talking about Jesus, to which they respond, we can't help, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. And once they were released, they get with the church and they pray. They ask for power to witness even more boldly in the face of persecution, and God answers their prayer. At the end of chapter 4 in Acts, we see a description of fellow believers sharing their goods, and we meet Barnabas for the first time, who is held up as a model of this practice. Whereas in chapter 5, we see Ananias and Sapphira abuse this practice, they threaten unity within the church, and they receive immediate judgment. But the church is still growing. Then the apostles get arrested again and put in prison, but God miraculously opens the prison doors and brings them out. And what do they start doing once they get out? They start preaching the gospel. Once the apostles appear before the Jewish council, the council says, we told you not to teach in the name of Jesus, to which the apostles say, we must obey God rather than men. The apostles are then beaten and told not to speak in the name of Jesus, to which they respond by rejoicing that they are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, and they don't stop preaching about Jesus. In Acts 6, the church continues to grow, but a problem arises. A group of widows are being neglected in the daily distribution, and so seven godly men are chosen to serve these widows. The problem is solved, and the result is that the gospel continues to go forth. Then Stephen, one of those seven godly men, is arrested, and gives this long address before the Sanhedrin where he recounts Israel's history. But once he starts to talk about Jesus, he is immediately cut off, and he becomes the first Christian martyr and is stoned to death. We are then briefly introduced to Saul, who we know as Paul, and he is approving of Stephen's execution, and he takes the lead in persecuting the church. But this persecution only serves to further advance the gospel, and we see the gospel spread outside of Jerusalem as it goes to Judea and Samaria. Philip goes to Samaria, he preaches the gospel, and many Samaritans believe. 
God then directs Philip to witness to the Ethiopian eunuch, where Philip is able to explain Jesus to him from the scriptures, and he believes and is baptized. Then we get to Acts chapter 9, another very significant chapter in the Bible, where we see the conversion of Saul, Paul. He is, at this point, terrorizing the church of Jesus. He is on his way to arrest Christians, and then the risen Christ appears to him, and his life changes forever. The Lord says of Paul, He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles. And so Paul goes from persecutor to preacher. In Acts 10 and 11, we see the conversion of the Gentile soldier Cornelius, along with his relatives and close friends. Then we read this in Acts eleven nineteen. Look at it with me. Acts 11, verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that rose over Stephen, described in chapter 6 and 7, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So after the martyrdom of Stephen, believers scattered outside of Jerusalem because of the persecution. And some of those scattered believers ended up in the city of Antioch. And what do these scattered believers do when they get to Antioch? They start preaching the gospel. But notice at this point, they're only speaking the word to Jews. In verse 20, but some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. So there's some of these scattered believers that get to Antioch and they start preaching the gospel to Hellenists, to, to Gentiles, non-Jews, non which means that these guys are crossing cultural barriers to preach about Jesus. And in verse 21, it says, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So notice that God is, God is saving people through the preaching of the gospel. And from the earliest days in the church of Antioch, we see the remarkable outreach to unbelievers. And the mighty hand of the Lord is with them, and many are turning to the Lord. And so we learn that the church in Antioch was, was really born as a result of persecution. The church at Antioch was formed as a direct result of the persecution following Stephen's death. Persecution, remember that, that Paul was instrumental in leading. And so Paul inadvertently starts the church in Antioch, which will ultimately send him out on mission. How incredible, right? Well, something only the Lord can do. Only the Lord can do this. So the persecution following Stephen's death ends up having the, having the opposite of its intended effect, right? The persecution was meant to stop the Jesus movement, but instead God uses this persecution to spread his gospel even further. And so we see the triumphant march of the gospel expand to the Gentile city of Antioch. In verse 22, the report of this came to the ears in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So the church in Jerusalem, they hear about this tremendous growth that's happening in Antioch, and they send Barnabas to sort of check things out. In verse 23, when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So once Barnabas gets to Antioch, he rejoices to see the grace of God at work, and he encourages them all to remain faithful to the Lord. In verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples are first called Christians. So Barnabas, he's overseeing this tremendous growth, so much so that he knows he needs help. So what does he do? He goes to recruit the best discipler that he knows, Paul. Barnabas knows where to find him. He goes to Tarsus to get Paul. What a recruiting trip that was. So we see the partnership 
between Paul and Barnabas begin here, and together they stay for one year, and they teach in the church at Antioch. In chapter 12, uh, the Jerusalem church is persecuted. James is killed with a sword. Peter is put in prison again, but the Lord miraculously brings him out. Um, so, so by the way, this suffering, this persecution that we see is another key theme in the book of Acts. We see the suffering and persecution come because of the faithful proclamation of the gospel. And it's really in that context where the church grows and prospers, which is the same way that it works today. Chapter 12 ends by telling us that the word of God increased and multiplied. So we get another note on the triumphant march of the gospel. Nothing can stop this powerful gospel. Then we come to Acts chapter 13, which really marks a turning point in the book. The first 12 chapters, the focus is on Peter, and the emphasis is the Jewish church in Jerusalem and Judea. Chapters 13 through 28, the second half of Acts, is a focus really on Paul and his missionary journeys and the spread of the Gentile church throughout the Roman world, which begins here at Antioch. So here in Acts 13, I would like to make five observations about the church at Antioch, which really serves as a model church for sending out missionaries. Five observations. Number one, they were gathered for worship. Number two, they were led by the word. Number three, they were guided by the spirit. Number four, they were sending those set apart. And then number five, which comes at the end of chapter 14, they are rejoicing together once their missionaries return home. So let's read the text again, Acts 13, one, starting in verse one, and look for those first four descriptions, and then we'll see the fifth one at the end of chapter 14. So Acts 13, verse one. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So observation number one, notice that they are gathered for worship. We see this in verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord. Notice the people of God are together. In Acts, we see the early church was consistently together, and we see the importance of the community life of the body. The normal pattern, the normal expectation is that when a person believes in Jesus, that person will then gather with others who believe in Jesus. And there you have a church that is formed. God has given us a wonderful gift in the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice though that the people of God are not merely together, the people of God are gathered together for worship. The whole church is gathered together for worship. This was their purpose for gathering together. They are worshiping the Lord. Notice that the, the Lord is the object of their worship. He is the recipient of their worship. They're, they are worshiping him. They are focusing together on Jesus as the one worthy of their worship because of who he is and what he has done for us. Notice also that as part of their worship, they are fasting and praying. Fasting in the scriptures is often connected with this vigilant, passionate prayer. Right? They, are, they are worshiping with intensity and great seriousness. They are intentionally seeking God's guidance in prayer. Of course, prayer is absolutely critical in the life of a believer, and prayer is absolutely critical in the mission of God. Prayer is definitely a key theme in the book of Acts. As you read through it, you see prayer mentioned in 13 of the first 14 chapters of Acts. Here in chapter 13, the church is praying, the Holy Spirit speaks to set Paul and Barnabas aside, and then the church prays again. 
before they are sent off. And so the church's actions here are really drenched in prayer. They were a worshiping and praying community. So a summary of our first observation, the expansion of the gospel to the ends of the earth begins when the church is gathered together, worshiping the Lord. God, here in Acts 13, he's about to change the world forever by his actions, and he uses the church that was gathered together for worship in order to do it. So I think the lesson for us here is that worship fuels mission. Worship fuels mission. God acts in worship to spread worship. John Piper famously said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. So the goal is for all the peoples, all the people groups to worship Jesus. And because that is not yet the case, missions exists, right? Worship is the goal of missions. And worship is also the fuel of missions because God uses those who are worshiping Jesus to spread the worship of Jesus. Observation number two, notice that the church was led by the word. They were led by the word of God. And verse one says they were in the church of Antioch, prophets and teachers. So the church of Antioch was gathered together with its leaders, its prophets and teachers. And what do prophets and teachers do? Right? They, they teach the word of God, right? They preach God's word to God's people. This church has multiple men who are teaching God's word to God's people. So the Antioch church is led by a plurality of godly men following the biblical design. Five men are listed, and these five men, they come from diverse backgrounds. Um, Barnabas, we know he's from Cyprus. Simeon, a Jewish name, likely came from northern Africa, as did Lucius from Cyrene. Uh, Menaean, interesting, he has these political connections because of his upbringing, and of course Saul was a Jew. So the diversity of their leadership, I think, also reflects the diversity of their membership. The Antioch church was diverse. It was made up of not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles, the non-Jews. But the church was united by the word of God. They were united around the word of God. So we don't know much about Simeon, Lucius, and Menaean, but we do know a good deal about Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, if you remember, he was, he was well-known and respected by the apostles, really from the earliest times. His name was Joseph, but we learn in chapter 4 that the apostles nicknamed him uh, Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So he was known by his ability to encourage others. He was from Cyprus, which is where Paul and Barnabas will begin their first missionary journey. In Acts 9, we learn that the apostles, they were initially skeptical of Paul's conversion, but it was Barnabas who reached out to Paul and interceded for him and really introduced Paul to the apostles when everybody else was suspicious of him. So it was Barnabas who vouched for Paul's bold preaching about Jesus. And we already saw in Acts 11 how the church in Jerusalem chose Barnabas to send to Antioch when they heard that the Gentiles had started turning to the Lord. And so Barnabas, he had already left something familiar to go do something unfamiliar already once before. As for Paul, we've already talked about how his life was forever changed by Jesus on the Damascus Road, which, by the way, Paul's story is a lot like my story, right? And your story, if you have come to trust in Jesus. Uh, like Paul, I was an enemy of God living in rebellion against him, but then I met Jesus and everything changed. And similar to how Paul was saved in order to be sent out on mission, we have also been saved by God's grace in order to be sent out on mission, right? The Lord has brought us in so that he may send us out. So a summary of our first two observations, we have seen that the church Antioch was gathered for worship and the church Antioch was led by the word of God as they sat under the teaching of these five godly men. So I think that we can conclude that it is natural 
it is expected that as the church has regular encounters with the word of God, that they will be compelled to take the gospel to those who have not heard before. In this text, we see that going and sending starts first really as a natural overflow of our worship of God and the study of his word. Observation number three, the church was guided by the spirit. They were guided by the spirit. Notice in verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So here we see the Holy Spirit speak. The Holy Spirit gives this decisive guidance to the church as they are worshiping and fasting and praying. Notice that the idea for the journey did not originate with the church. Rather, the idea for the journey originates with the Holy Spirit. The source of the calling and the mission was God. This is God's mission, and he takes the initiative in directing his people. It's really hard at this point to overstate the importance of this moment in Antioch. John Piper says of this moment, before this word from the Holy Spirit, there seems to have been no organized mission of the church beyond the eastern seacoast of the Mediterranean. Before this, Paul had made no missionary journeys westward to Asia Minor, Greece, or Rome, or Spain. Before this, Paul had not written any of his letters, which were all the result of his missionary travels beginning here. This moment of prayer and fasting resulted in a missions movement that would make Christianity the dominant religion of the Roman Empire within two and a half centuries. 13 of the 27 books were the result of the ministry that was launched in this moment of fasting and praying. So this is the moment that world missions began as the Spirit calls Paul and Barnabas to this new work. Notice in verse 4, it says, So being sent out by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit sends them out through the local church, right? The local church is guided and directed by the Spirit. And in verse 5, it says, When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. So they were sent out by the Spirit, and what did they do once they were sent out? They proclaimed the word of God, right? They, they did what missionaries do. They preached the gospel. Missionaries, they seek to meet the greatest need in the world by sharing the greatest news in the world. If we think about all the problems in the world today, there are no doubt many problems in our broken and fallen world. And as believers, we certainly care about all kinds of human suffering. But the greatest problem in the world is lostness. So we especially care about eternal suffering, right? eternal suffering that awaits those who remain under God's wrath. And we know the solution to this greatest need is the greatest news, the greatest news of the gospel, that the holy God saves sinners through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. And so the preaching of this gospel is of primary importance in order to meet man's primary need. Notice in verse 5 also that they proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. This is the pattern in Paul's ministry. When he arrives in a place, he goes to the synagogue first, and so there's clearly a priority to take the gospel to the Jews first. But by and large, the Jews reject the gospel, which then allows for the spread of the gospel among the Gentiles. So, so far, as we have seen, the church Antioch was gathered for worship, they were led by the word of God, and number three, they were guided by the Holy Spirit. Observation number four, they were sending those set apart. The church sends those who had been set apart. Notice in verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. I want to point out four things here. Notice number one, not all of them are called to this kind of work, right? Every single person in the church was not called to go, but some of them are. Some are called to this kind of work. These men are, calling by, these men are being called by the Lord 
to leave where they're at and go to another place. Notice number two, the church sent their best out. Of the five leaders, Paul and Barnabas were the most prominent. These guys are tried and proven men. They are well-known and respected teachers. Barnabas, he was a gifted encourager. Paul, of course, was a mighty preacher of the gospel. And the church sends out those who have already proven themselves in gospel ministry. Now, no doubt, these were guys that the church leaned on. And this probably was difficult on both sides. Difficult for the church and difficult for Paul and Barnabas. It would have been difficult on the church to send out two gifted leaders. Like, the church may have wondered, how are things going to go on if they leave? It was probably difficult on these guys to leave a worshiping community that you love. To leave them behind would have been difficult. But this sending and this leaving, even though it was hard, it was good. And it was incredibly fruitful. Notice number three, that this was a church surrendered to the mission of God. They were surrendered to the mission of God. The Holy Spirit called them to this work. And when the Holy Spirit said, do this, they did it. They did it. They responded by setting apart these two guys to be sent out on mission. And so they were willing to give away key leaders in obedience to God and for the good of the nations. And notice number four, the missionaries were sent by a specific congregation. A specific church sends them out. The Spirit said, Paul and Barnabas, and that church, the church of Antioch, celebrated it and sent them off on mission. In verse 3, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This laying on of hands was their commissioning. Uh, It indicates the church's support, affirmation, and partnership with these two as they are sent off. And so I think the lesson for us here is that the local church has the responsibility to affirm those who have been called by the Lord and then send and support and partner with them as they are sent. At First Baptist Church, we've had the privilege to do this, uh, to to gather around families, to lay our hands on them, to pray for them as we send them out. And these are such sweet times. Uh, And I think really after the biblical model that we see here in Acts 13. In Acts 13, this Antioch church, they become the first church to launch uh, a major missionary outreach beyond their own borders. And they really become the launching pad for Paul's mission. The rest of chapters 13 and 14, we get the details of of Paul's first missionary journey. We see the victories in Paul and Barnabas' ministry. The gospel is going forth in their work. They begin by witnessing on the island of Cyprus, again, Barnabas' home. They then set sail and eventually arrive at Antioch of Pisidia, this different Antioch, where Paul preaches in the synagogue there, and the gospel is initially well-received. But then at the end of the chapter, there is the seeming defeat as the Jews turn against Paul and reject the message. And so Paul turns to the Gentiles and preaches to them, and many of them believe. But eventually, Paul and Barnabas are driven out of town. And in Acts 14, they are in the city of Iconium, where they have success coupled with apparent failure. They preach in the synagogue, and many Jews and Gentiles believe, but eventually they are rejected. And this plan is made to stone them, and so they flee to Lystra. And this is really where most of the action happens on this first journey. And success and challenge there reach a whole new level. It's this wild story where the people declare Paul a god, and then a few verses later, Paul is nearly stoned. But then he gets back up and goes back into the city to continue preaching the gospel. Then in Acts 14.21, if you look at, look at it there, Acts 14.21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. 
And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So Paul makes his return trip to these churches so that he can encourage them and see to it that there are local leaders who can lead those churches, which is really a good way to do missions. And this would be one way to partner in prayer with the church in Central Asia is to ask the Lord to do this, to ask the Lord to raise up local leaders who will be able to lead that local church. Now, as we come to our fifth and final observation, we, see, we will see the church rejoices together as the missionaries return home. Look at it in Acts 14, 24. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended but to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. So in verse 26, they finished their missionary journey and they returned to Antioch. They come back to the place that had initially sent them out. And so we learn that the departure of these two missionaries was not a separation. They did not leave the church of Antioch never to return again. They did not leave the church of Antioch and cease all communication with them. Rather, these guys were sent on mission, but they still remained connected to the church. They were still part of the church. And so we could say they were simply redeployed for missionary service. In verse 27, when they come back in Antioch, to Antioch, what do they do? They gather the church together, right? They bring reports of their mission back to the church, and they declare all that God had done with them. They give a summary of God's work among the Gentiles. They tell the church what God had done with them. Notice it's God's work, right? But it is God working through their faithful obedience and witness. So God is working through the church to spread the church and plant the church. If you remember back in Acts 13 too, the Spirit initially directed the church to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which he had called them. And so now they return to Antioch having accomplished the work, right? They completed all that God had for them on that journey. And so in verse 28, they spend time with the church. The church, notice, is there for them when they return, and they enjoy the fellowship of the body. And no doubt, the church rejoiced and celebrated and encouraged the missionaries as they heard stories from their journey. And so the partnership between the local church and its missionaries was maintained. And so in summary of the five observations, I think what we see here in the church of Antioch is a model of the missionary-sending church and a model of a healthy church. They were gathered for worship, right? They were a God-exalting church. They were united and led by the word of God. They were guided by the Holy Spirit. They sent those whom the Lord had set apart, and they rejoiced with their missionaries when they returned back home, which is the design for the sending church, right? To remain connected for those that they send out, to keep involved in the work, even from afar, which is really easier today than ever with the technology that we have. So in closing, three applications. We have seen that the local church is Christ's primary strategy for missions. So application number one, give Christ a blank check with your life and be willing to go wherever he leads. The missionary task still needs to be completed. Churches still need to be planted among people groups where the church does not exist. There are still thousands of people groups that have no access to a gospel preaching church in their own culture. And Jesus is worthy of the worship from every single one of them. About half the people in the world live in an unreached people group. And unreached is, is not the same thing as lost, right? There are plenty of lost people here in our city, but they are reached 
because the church is established here, the church is here and able to evangelize them. Lost people here have access to the gospel. Me and you are their access to the gospel since we can share the gospel with them. But those who live in unreached people groups have very limited or no access to the gospel at all. There aren't any, there aren't many, if any, followers of Jesus there to tell them the gospel. There is no church there that is able to evangelize them without some outside assistance. And so in light of the missionary task that still needs to be completed, application number two, as John Piper would say, we have three options. We can go, we can send, or we can disobey. We can be a zealous goer, we can be a zealous sender, or we can be disobedient. If God is calling you to be a zealous goer, whether short-term, mid-term, or long-term, listen to him and go. And prepare now so that when the Lord opens a door to go, you'll be quick to say yes. Prepare by abiding in Christ, immersing yourself in his word, and by participating in the fellowship of the body of Christ. Be doing the work here in evangelism and discipleship and other ministry opportunities, because doing the work here will prepare you to do the work wherever God calls you to. These types of workers, zealous goers, are needed. There is a need for workers who will leave here and cross a culture to take the gospel to those who have not heard. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus tells his disciples to pray for workers, pray for workers to be sent out into the field to take the gospel to those who have never heard. Paul says in Romans 10, for everyone, 10, 10 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So the church must send. Those sent must preach. So that by their preaching, the lost may hear and believe and call on the Lord to be saved. Some are called to go out for the sake of the name. Those who are not called to go out for the sake of the name are called to stay for the sake of the name, to be a sender, to be a zealous sender. And so if God is calling you to be a zealous sender, pray fervently and regularly for missionaries. Give generously, even sacrificially to missions. Be salt and light where God has placed you and join others in sending out and holding the rope for those who are called to go. Both goers and senders certainly are important in God's eyes. Both are absolutely needed in the mission. What matters is obedience to what God is calling you to do. If zealous goer or zealous sender does not describe you and you're being disobedient, I would say repent. Ask the Lord to change your heart. Finally, application number three, remember, we know how this mission ends. This great commission will succeed. It cannot fail. Jesus' sovereign authority ensures the success of the global mission. Obedience to the Great Commission will certainly not be easy. It will be costly, but it will also be worth it. Nothing can stop the mission. Jesus said he will build his church. This mission is unstoppable. In Revelation 5, when the mission is complete, we see all the nations, all the people groups worshiping God. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10 say this, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth.
So we see, in the end, with his blood, Jesus ransomed people from every tribe, every nation. He bought them. He purchased them with his own blood. So missionaries can go with confidence even when they go to hard-to-reach peoples. They can know that eventually some of them are coming out. From that, some from that group will believe in Jesus because they're there in the end in Revelation 5. We also see the great multitude in Revelation 7. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Christ died to save people from every nation and tongue and tribe. And one day, they will gather around God to give him the glory due his name. We look forward to that day. And until then, let's be busy with the mission. So I'll close this in prayer. And if you need to come down for some reason, I think there'll be uh, those down here who can, who can help meet those needs. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for the chance to worship you this morning. Thank you for what you've shown us in your word. We thank you for allowing us to hear the gospel and be saved. We know that you have brought us in in order that we, be, we may be sent out. We ask that you would empower us with your spirit to be faithful in our gospel proclamation to unbelievers. Grant us courage and boldness, O oh Lord. We pray that you would save lost people through our faithful witness. And we also pray for lost people in, in Central Asia right now. Oh God, save them. We know that nothing is too hard for you, Lord. No human heart is beyond your power to break. So please, take out hearts of stone, put in hearts of flesh, cause them to be born again, raise them from spiritual death, open their blind eyes and give them faith to believe in Jesus. And Father, in, in light of Acts 13, grant us, please, wisdom to discern whether you are calling us to be a zealous sender or a zealous goer and deliver any of us from disobedience. Lord, we love you and we ask this in Christ's name, amen.